Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined today by my beautiful and smart and hysterically fun friend and co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith. And we are over the moon to invite back our good friend, I hope we're allowed to call you um, that Dr. Blazina, Dr. Chris Blazina, to talk about his new book, The Unwavering Friend. Um, and we're going to explore uh, this particular um, book in more than one episode. So I'm really excited to learn more about um, the research for the book and what you covered in the book and how dogs and people are so uniquely linked together. So as is the tradition, I did the introduction. And so Julie will ask the first question. All right. Well, I'm so glad you're back with us, Dr. Blazina. I'm, I'm very excited to have you and um, I en enjoyed your book very much. Um, I thought your language was, was quite lovely in several spots and um, had some really interesting connections, I think, for men and dogs. And the book is about historical figures, historic men in history and their connections to their dogs. So that should be said right up front. One of the things you say in the introduction that I love with, um, this is in regards to men, but I think everybody feels this way, is that we relax and comfortably abide within our connection. What a wonderful way to describe the way in which we connect to our animals, especially to our dogs. Um, I think the theme of the book is the idea of, of home, that men find a home in the companionship of their animals, a place to rest their souls. As you say on, chat, on page 32, home is a state of mind, a place where you belong. So I'd kind of like for you to talk a little bit about uh, why you chose the men you did um, for this book and, and uh, how that... Uh, how that theme of home kind of developed? Well, that's a fair question. And it's nice to be back with you both. And I appreciate the opportunity to visit. Um, my dogs are running around in the background. Uh, if you hear them, uh, they, it's their version of rooting for us as we talk, I think. So, well, um, so, you know, I was thinking about this last night, like in terms of us talking today. And one of the things that rolled around in my brain was, um, the whole idea of finding kind of that one unwavering friend, it's such a big deal. I would go as far as saying it's a psychological necessity. And, and it especially shows up in difficult times, um, in more psychological lingo, uh, when we feel stressed or alone or burdened. It's when our need to attach really kicks in, the fancy phrase is our attachment system activates, which basically means that we look for someone to connect with, to kind of share our burden. Um, now, you know, like in more contemporary psychology, especially more psychoanalysis, the idea that we're basically social creatures, all mammals are social creatures in terms of that need to connect. And there are certain times, especially, like I said, when that need is particularly prominent. And 
that's really, in my mind, whether I was thinking about it entirely at the time or not, that's what I saw in these stories that I collected over and over again. Uh, many of the men were middle-aged and beyond, which has its own set of unique uh, problems and rewards. And uh, some went through really difficult times. And that one unwavering friend turned out to be not always a human, but uh, somebody on four legs who was their emotional constant. And um, the funny thing about research in this book was I started with a couple of people that I had more access to in terms of trying to understand their, you know, basically their psychological profile and where dogs fit into that. So I started with Freud and Charles Dickens and the more I discovered about these folks, the more I discovered that there were other people, contemporaries, some before, some after, that fell into that same category of, boy, well, there really was a need for one unwavering friend. And um, the book just kind of went from one connection to the next and next. And uh, you might see throughout the book that there are these links between people that you might not normally associate, uh, but they're there. And uh, that link is often based on their connection with dogs. So when you were researching, were there um, any, were any of the subject men, men who came to their relationship with dogs later in life? Um, or were they all pretty much in love with dogs from the very beginning? That's a fair question to ask. And I think um, you, you know, the way I'd respond to that is even the ones that had an early connection, the kind of the chapters in their lives that I cover, their connection with dogs took on a different kind of meaning and uh, a more prominent meaning and role in their life in terms of offering a type of emotional support that helped them in their sometimes personal, but certainly in their professional endeavors. Some of the folks we might talk about today, Darwin and Dickens and Freud, um, that was all true for them uh, in terms of that meaning changed as their lives changed and certain kinds of challenges showed up that made it really difficult, especially for them to turn to human beings as a reliable, one unwavering friend. Did any of them surprise you? Oh, I think they all had their own twists and turns. And uh, I, I think one of the things that I wrote this a good bit of this book uh, more than a few years ago. And like my process in writing is I'll set it down for a couple of years, maybe sometimes or at least a little while, and then I'll pick it back up. And um, it was really during the, the heart of the pandemic that I really started going back through these chapters and it really made the point in my mind, again, it's just like during pivotal points in our lives, especially when we need some kind of connection, some kind of tie to help bolster us. Uh, and it can be during pandemics, it can be uh, in middle age or when relationships fail or our health is challenged. Um, and it prompts that need to connect in a really big way. I found it really interesting about Freud is that it seemed that he came to dogs somewhat later in life and that he suffered a great deal of, of loss and pain. 
And, um, but what I loved was the fact that he um, relied on his dogs in such interesting ways. Like he had jaw cancer and his dogs would masticate his meat for him so that he could actually eat it. And then the other thing is, is that one of them was always in the consultation room. And if the dog did not accept the patient, Freud would not accept the patient. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, and uh, I, I thought that um, it, it was a, a genuine reflection on the idea that, that dogs can't lie about emotions. In, at least I don't, in general, they, they, they can't. I think that they're going to be telling you the truth about somebody right from the get-go. And Freud picked up on that, and I thought that was very interesting. Is there anything else about Freud that you think would be um, interesting to our, our, our listeners that uh, you might want to mention? Well, uh, I mean, the, the points you made there, I think, are really important. Um, you know, like the earlier version of how dogs were in Freud's life were really between he and his daughter that they would communicate in the guise of, yes, our German shepherd wrote this uh, bit of prose or poetry and they wanted to wish you a happy birthday. So let me read what they wrote on your behalf. Um, it, I think one of the curious things about that is that um, I have patients who do the same thing. Like that's their. Oh, their honey, I do the same thing all the time. <laughs> the dogs well, are always sending notes to my children and my grandchildren and my husband. <laughs> Well, it, it is a way to go about doing it. So, I mean, it that connection had, um, you know, with their German shepherd, had a special meaning between he and his daughter. But, you know, Freud was 62 when he was diagnosed with jaw cancer and more than 30 operations over 16 years. And this really took a toll on him emotionally. And one of the historical things about um, Freud's psychoanalysis was, you know, you, you might think about that kind of couch where patient lies on the couch and the analyst is behind them and they don't look at each other. Now, one of the historical notes there is that Freud wrote about the idea that it was uncomfortable to have people stare at him uh, for long periods of time. So uh, part of that certainly could be connected, and people have speculated that it was due to the jaw cancer. And at some point, he had a prosthetic uh, because jawbone had to be replaced. So there's some of that history. And then you add to it, uh, at some point, there was a kind of a suggestion by one of his colleagues, and Freud was thinking about already, about maybe I should bring one of my dogs in the consultation room. And it can be viewed like, oh, that's there to put the patient at ease, uh, kind of like it is today in terms of things like animal-assisted therapy. Again, the, the idea that the dog was really there for Freud and giving him a kind of soothing and comfort and, um, you know, some of these things kind of almost border on myth and legend that uh, his dog had his own couch that, you know, when it was time to begin the session, the dog would climb into the couch and um, Freud didn't have a real need for a clock because when time was up, the dog would get up and he knew it was time to stop. So again, this is like almost kind of mythological, it, it, it kind of seems, but you know, Freud did go through a number of losses, especially in the middle and latter part of his life. Uh, so the cancer part was there, uh, the mounting pressures from uh, 
beginning of what would become World War II. At the latter part of his life, he had to move from Vienna to London and start all over. It was financially taxing for him, which was really stressful. It was really a big deal for him. And um, other moving pieces and parts, too. He began to gain more distance from his daughter, who was really somebody he really turned to. And uh, his daughter, Anna Freud, was a very well-known psychoanalyst in, in her own right, especially with children. So all these bits and pieces were happening, and Freud really found comfort. He was inseparable from his two chow dogs, the last uh, bits of pieces of his life. Um, he's photographed with them. And um, one of the things I talk about, too, is, you know, I started writing this book, and there are two pictures in my office where I started writing this book. And one is of Freud and one of his chows. And Freud was such, he was known to be so over-controlling in so many different ways, especially with psychoanalysis and colleagues who had a different opinion than him. And they would part ways because it had to be his way. And what struck me about this picture, and there's an illustration of the picture in the book, but Freud is sitting in a chair and his dog Luna is up on her hind legs, up on Freud's legs. And they are looking at each other in what is such a tender and intimate moment. And one of the reasons this struck me was just like, this isn't consistent with the persona Freud uh, presented and people usually think about. And this was like a very tender moment. And it, that's one of the parts that really struck me. And it's a part of this book and it's part of my own experience and experiences of people who share with me about their connection with their dogs. There's a part of them that becomes more accessible there with their dogs. Sometimes it's a more tender part. Sometimes it's uh, certainly a more real part. But it's a part that we don't always see. And that's certainly a theme in this book throughout these 19, 20 different stories. People you might not expect to be dog people. Dogs had, they provided a type of window into their hearts and minds and souls in terms of who they really were below the professional persona. Um, I found that interesting when the uh, part about the Joffe being in the office with Freud, when um, Dr. or Dr. Um, when Amy Tan came to the Thurber house here in Columbus to, uh, for a book um, reading and signing, she brought, she has two little Yorkies, which she brought. And these are tiny, tiny Yorkies. And she always travels with them. And she has them on the desk where she's signing uh, books for people. And she told me it was because it offered a connection between her and her readers that um, made things easier. It was an easier way for her to connect with the readers because they could talk about the dogs or, or whatever and it put everybody at ease. And I think she was thinking in terms of making it easier for the readers. But when you were talking about Freud, I bet you my bottom dollar, it also makes it a whole lot easier for Amy Tan to be able to divert, um, so at least for me, it would be to divert some of the, oh, you're so wonderful and you're so great and so on and so forth. And, you know, just the adulation can get, um, I would imagine, not that I have ever experienced exhaustive adulation, but I would think that it would be exhausting and to have some way to divert that to have would make it easier all the way around. So, um, it's not just psychoanalysts. Apparently, it's writers that do that's that. That's true. Too. 
Definitely so. And this is under the, the heading of dogs and animal companions as a type of social lubricant that makes it easier for people to interact with other people. Uh, and that's an awfully big deal. Puts people at ease who are not normally at ease, especially if life has been more than a little difficult. Well, I mean, we're seeing it with the pandemic. How many families have gone out and gotten dogs or individuals have gone and gotten dogs to be their companion through a very stressful, scary time and to have, um, I don't know, they, they don't tell your secrets, you know, like there's just, there is magic about that, um, that they seem to always just kind of know how to be a salve on the rough edges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, that's a very special part of that connection. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, Dickens and his use of animals in his novels. Um, at one point you say that um, he would characterize a person by how he or she treated them in the novel. And I was wondering if you could um, just discuss that a little bit more, because I found that very interesting that um, Dickens used animals in that way. So if you could just address that, that'd be great. Well, I mean, I think one of the more prominent examples there is, um, or one of the villains, uh, Bill Sykes, his mistreatment of his dog is really prominent. And uh, Dickens uses this in a real literary fashion in terms of, oh, this is what this person's about. This is this kind of person in terms of like, they would mistreat their loyal dog. And even though the dog in the novel, even though the dog is really mistreated the dog keeps coming back uh and i don't know if you've ever seen the older black and white version of david copperfield from the 1950s but uh they're terrifying scenes there in terms of the villains and in the book now in the film and how the dog really conveys to both the readers and the watchers like this person is not a person you want to be around they will hurt you. Uh, they will misabuse you in various ways. So um, that that's a theme that I know <clears throat> Dickens scholars really talk about. But um, of all the different chapters, this is probably my favorite to at least research and to know a little bit about the background here. And you alluded to this a little bit already. But so Dickens grew up in... Uh, his grandparents were servants, and his father barely escaped the, the same situation through the influence of a family friend who helped him get basically a clerk job in the, the Navy payroll. And one of the things that happened was that his family was never good with money, even if there was a little bit of money. And when Dickens was 12, his family went to the workhouse, which was version of bankruptcy for the day that you stayed there and did hard labor and until you paid off your debts or had someone step in and pay them off for you and that's kind of what happened for dickens he he was there for a couple of years in terms of like the shoe blackening shop that you know it, it it in his telling of it um it probably becomes even more dire um he's a 12 year old boy who's basically on his own and his family is away, and 
his own recollection of the day that his father was taken away to debtor's prison. And his father told him, this is the day that the sun set on my life. And Charles Dickens is 12 years old when he hears this. And now he's in charge of trying to support his family and how alone he felt. And this situation became really pivotal in terms of his creative genius. Dickens was um, a great walker, uh, sometimes up to 20 miles a day, and he would walk around what would be considered the more shoddy sides of London. And people thought, oh, he's just in his creative mood. And really, there's been speculation that really kind of what was going on was he was not just in a creative mood in terms of writing, but he was sorting through his own past as a potential way to create characters. And in fact, Dickens alludes to this uh, when he has a visit from the Russian writer Dostoevsky, and he tells him um, the good characters in the novels are uh, an extension of my uh, aspirational self, and then the villains are some version of me as well. So when we talk about Charles Dickens, um, he is a complicated fellow. And, you know, it seems right to talk about him a little bit now that we're about six weeks away from Christmas thereabout, because he's the man who helped create basically the modern version of Christmas through the Christmas Carol. Um, but uh, one of the things that's really important in all this was that Dickens carried with him those childhood experiences throughout his whole life. He had an incredible work ethic. And part of the work ethic was he wanted to make sure that he didn't end up like his father. So he kept working and working and working. His middle age years were really difficult between he and his wife, uh, Catherine, who they had 10 children together. And Dickens was not always kind about uh, the, the lack of a fit between him and Catherine. Sometimes they were in, he would send letters to friends, sometimes public announcements, uh, sometimes even worse than that. So Dickens was not an angel. And one of the reasons why I found him to be really important is that he's really complicated, complicated like this all. And I think his friends summed up Dickens probably best. He's a good man trying to be a good man in a difficult situation. And um, he's complicated. And I think that's one of the reasons why potentially dogs appealed to him, because there was such a simplicity there in terms of their bond and their connection. And uh, I, I think that spoke to him in a deep level. That and the type of emotional constant that he experienced, especially with a few of his dogs. Uh, probably my favorite story about Dickens, and it, it fits in the complexity of all the things we're talking about, is one day he's in his um, kind of his country home in Kent, and it's very snowy, blustery winter day. And He's going to do what he always does. He's going to go for a walk and thinks he has something wrong with his foot. But he goes for this walk and he's about three miles into the snowy wilderness and comes up lame. And he realizes later that really he has frostbite and he's not in a good way. And it's going to be really difficult for him to get back. And I have to imagine in that moment a kind of childhood panic may have showed up, like it showed up for most of us when we're in those moments, like, oh, I can only count on myself. And the story Dickens tells is that 
he's in this place, he's come up lame, and then he sees these two big dogs up on the hill, and he realizes that they're both his, and one of them is one of his favorite dogs, Turk. And what he talks about is the dogs instantly recognize him, and they join him on the way home, step for step. Dogs never get in front or behind him. They stay in perfect synchronicity with him as he muddles back home. And um, there's a lot to that story. And I think there is something to that story in terms of how how dogs really appeal to Dickens. Like, that's the kind of attuned, in-step connection he always wanted with people. But... Some of his own limitations made him feel really disappointed, even with his closest friends and family. But it was a different deal with the dogs. And I think that recollection of his dogs basically in step, escorting him home through the snow while he's lame, an essential psychological need we all have. But especially if you have been deeply disappointed by people, you should be able to count on. I had someone ask me, why I felt so deeply about dogs at one point and um, I was being interviewed for something and I was completely candid and just said, because I owe them me right in times in my life where there wasn't um, any other thing or person that I could rely on, I could lean into my dogs and I um, owe them so much for just loving me, like walking step by step with me through not difficult, you know, not easy, profoundly difficult times. Um, and I love that you're that that Dickens was brave and shared that because I think, well, for me, and I know it's not everyone, and that's okay, but for me, I think dogs do speak to us of God. And when we're difficult and when we're uncomfortable in our own skins, they still travel with us. So I love that you're sharing that story, even on another level with the world for all of these men, not just for Dickens or not just for Freud. I think it's a really beautiful gift to give to the world. Well, thanks. And I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I do think the thing we're talking about right now is part of the universal appeal of having such a trustworthy emotional constant in our lives uh, that it it transcends all kinds of barriers, including things like gender and uh, socioeconomic and political, that, boy, this is something we all need. And for those of us who find that need in our bond with dogs, it just makes it all that more special. I I couldn't agree more, and, and Tina, I feel very much the same way. That uh, part of me owes owes my very existence, my sanity, what little there is, to the having dogs in my life. One of the things I thought was interesting, Chris, that seems to me to be at least a theme, a theme between the three that we've talked a little bit about: Dickens, Darwin, and Freud, is the workaholic aspect of things. Dickens was a workaholic. Darwin was a workaholic. Um, Freud was a sort of work possessive, if not a workaholic. And that added difficulty to their relationships with people. And Darwin, for example, 
wouldn't actually communicate with people because he didn't, he was on the theoretical end of things and working on his work and his childhood experiences really shaped the way in which he viewed people. But it was through dogs that he made, you know, a, a, a much more compassionate connection to the world. And the same thing with Freud. So I, I wonder if there's something about being a workaholic that dogs can break through that part of it. Um, I also found, um, if you could talk a little bit, I, I thought that there was a, an awful lot of similarity between Darwin and Dickens in the influence of their childhood. Um, Dickens lost his mother to the workhouse. Darwin lost his mother at the age of eight and was told he was not to speak of her again. So I was kind of wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, um, that aspect of things and, and how dogs can help heal us through those kinds of things. Yeah, those are really good points. So um, I agree with you. There's there's something potentially parallel between um, these three folks we're talking about today. And sometimes the work, being a workaholic, is a way to potentially work through things like Dickens going for his 20-mile walks. That wasn't just about getting a good constitutional for the day. It was, hey, he's got some demons he's trying to vanquish here and sort through and make sense of. And his way of doing it was in more symbolic form by writing about extensions of himself in his novels. Uh, for Darwin, and that loss at a very tender young age where he really was told by his father and his sisters that, you know, we're never to speak of mom again. You could see the kind of potential impact that had on him. Um, and, you know, like one of the examples I talk about in the book was that uh, Darwin would go also, somebody who would go for long walks, but sometimes he would be so absorbed that he would have accidents. And there's one example where he walked off the shoulder of a 12-foot uh, bank um, because he was so lost in thought and probably lost in his grief. Um, you know, one of the things that's probably, you know, I think about like some of the paintings of Darwin and, you know, there's this kind of stoic, almost Moses-like uh, appearance with his long white beard, especially the latter part of his life. But Darwin was somebody who was, you could think about him as being a very emotionally sensitive person and somebody who felt things very deeply. Um, he just didn't have a way to, to kind of go about dealing with those feelings, especially that were grief and loss related in a way that he could get a handle on. So part of the story that goes with this is that Darwin would go through difficult bouts of anxiety and uh, kinds of depression and sometimes uh, his grief would show up more in the forms of somatic. He would, you know, have indigestion problems and heart problems. And for a long time, people thought this was due to uh, some kind of exotic or rare uh, disorder he developed. But John Bowlby, who you know we're kind of referencing in different ways here, the father of attachment theory and psychoanalysis, wrote a biography of Darwin. And it's a fascinating read and really important in terms of understanding him that this grief has to go somewhere. So what does Darwin do? Uh, Bowlby references this as almost like a secret cupboard that he tries to lock away all these feelings that are really uncomfortable and not just sadness, but also loss and anger. And he tries to keep the lid on that 
cupboard or pantry door shut very tight. But in his own life, when he encounters his own loss, like the loss of his daughter, or if he encounters other people's losses, this is when his somatic reaction would show up and he would go and have all these kind of physical problems and have uncontrollable sadness and anxiety. And this will be a predictable pattern over and over throughout his life. The one exception is kind of the last 10 years of his life. And this is an important twist and turn. Um, he sat on his manuscript um, uh, about the origin of the species for a long time. Um, he finally published it, very controversial. Um, he wrote two other really important books after that, uh, The Descent of Man, where he claims that there's a common ancestry between um, you know, animals and humans. And the last book, and the book that feels like it's really important to touch base about here, has to do with human and um, animal emotions. Now, for someone who has not really been trained to deal with emotions his entire life, other than to shut the cupboard door, now, to write a book about emotions in an intellectual way seems like a perfectly safe and viable way to approach them. So uh, if you can picture the scene that his dog, Polly, who is a terrier and closest dog to Darwin in his life, would sit right beside Darwin at his writing desk, Polly in her basket and Darwin at his desk as he's writing this book about human and animal emotions and how there's this core shared set of emotions that humans and animals both have. And he begins to compare them. And he's really one of the first people who used photographs in uh, a book. And he had someone take photographs of people in different emotional states. And to illustrate, especially the dog's reactions, he used his dog Polly as the model in terms of emotional expression and had a pretty famous painter during the day, Britton Riviere, uh, to illustrate Polly and other dogs in this kind of, you know, various emotional states. So, again, like from an intellectual perspective, these last 10 years is, you know, he's exploring emotions. And I have to imagine he couldn't help but explore his own emotions in this way as well. And the last few years of his life were definitely more settled and peaceful uh, than most the rest of his entire prior life. So um, part of that, I think, has to do with the acceptance of his theory, and which he desperately wanted acceptance, but was felt very conflicted because he was a very modest person as well. So there's that. It's the intellectual understanding of emotions and the presence of Polly throughout this all, sitting in a basket right beside Darwin's desk. It kind of makes me wish all these dogs could write a book. <laughs> like how fascinating <laughs> that book would be to read. Like each of these dogs go in. So let me talk to you about Mr. Freud. <laughs> right? Like because it wouldn't be Dr. Freud to Freud's dog, right? It would be like, let me talk to you about my dad or my friend. So yeah. He'd like probably I call often him something like Ziggy. What the, what the emails would be like if they came from the dogs instead of from <laughs> people, right? It would be a completely separate conversation, um, a conversation I find myself having a lot um, of being kind of, I don't know, 
they're they're such amazing creatures and we're so fortunate to have them. Um, and I don't think we appreciate them nearly enough. So that's that's just my two cents on that. I'm enjoying looking up all the different illustrations as we talk and see, getting to see illustrations of these very special dogs and these very special men. So what are some other, I was, so many, many years ago, Christopher and I did the Lincoln trail, the Abraham Lincoln trail here in the United States. We did almost all of it. Um, and I actually have a book I haven't read yet, of course, cause I'm me, um, about Abraham Lincoln and his dog. Cause he was actually a cat guy. He was not a dog guy. Um, mm. Something that was really fascinating about Lincoln is he constantly was bringing home stray cats and his whole family was like, dude, would you please stop? And he was like, no, there was a cat. We'll take care of him. Um, but he did eventually end up with a dog. So I have the book and have not read it. So I'll have to dust that off after I finish reading yours. <laughs> mm, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. I was going to say that um, I, I found the um, expression of the emotions in man and animals um, really enjoyable to take a look at. Um, I, and I told you before we started podcasting, my daughter was an undergrad at Dartmouth and she worked in the Rare Books Library. And I was up visiting once and we, she went over to introduce me to the Rare Books Librarian. He said, is there anything you'd like to see in particular? And I said, well, I don't know, something I'd kind of like to see Darwin. Do you have origin species? And he said, no. But with the expression of the, of the emotions in man in animal first edition and so he let me not only look at it, he let me hold it and thumb through it. And it was truly an amazing experience. And then my daughter and I were, when we were in England together, we did go to um, uh, uh, Westminster uh, Abbey and Dickens is buried there. So that was, she, she got into Dartmouth on a Dickens essay and her senior thesis was on Dickens that sort of took her out of Dartmouth. And then we visited Dickens. So he's sort of been a central theme in our family. And in fact, when she was in junior high and she was looking for a book on tape and she was dithering around and I finally looked over and I reached over and I took out great expectations off the rack. I said, here, listen to this. Or I know it was, maybe it was um, David Copperfield or something. And she said, have you read it? And I said, no, I was forced to read great expectations in high school. And that was enough Dickens for me. That, that got her hooked on Dickens. And so he's sort of been an integral part of our life in and out. So to read this chapter, I can't wait to show it to her because I'm sure she's going to find it quite interesting. Um, but uh, he was a fascinating man. And uh, so is there anything in particular that you would like readers to, uh, that would perhaps intrigue readers or give them a real reason to, to pick up your book? Something that you think is, is absolutely essential that we haven't covered. Well, the part I think I'd mentioned uh, here at the end is that these these men are not two-dimensional cutouts. And the more you look at their lives, um, if there's source material, and certainly the folks we're talking about today, they are three-dimensional and they're very human. And there's something, I, I think some people might have a reaction to that, like, oh, I'm disillusioned to know that this person wasn't perfect. And my reaction in writing and research this was, I like them even more uh, because they're so human uh, and they're so much more relatable. And the idea that 
a dog could find their way into these complex people's lives in such a special fashion. Uh, there's something really important about that, uh, not just in a historical way, but in ways that we understand it today and relate to it today, that, yeah, um, complex people need a kind of simplicity. And that simplicity really is built around the notion that you have at least one unwavering friend in your life. We just can't do without that. Uh, and, you know, it used to be the old notion that, you know, that's what you needed when you were a kid. But it's what we need throughout our whole life to flourish uh, and potentially survive. So if you want to know more about that complexity and the important places where dogs stepped into it and really made a difference, that might be a reader interested in. Was there anything you found these dogs all had in common? Oh, I mean, um, there's probably that sense of, again, like just being able to step into complex people's lives in a way that people couldn't do. Um, so part of the thing there would be the idea that when we're with our dogs, there's the thing that happens that we become more disarmed from the, uh, for some folks in the book, there are kind of prickly ways of being with people or keeping them at a distance or just completely off the shelf. Um, but with dogs, those defenses begin to drop and it, it has an impact even on grumpy middle-aged and beyond men in a way that's really important and special. Okay, Tina well, and I were both laughing over that one because I think we're both we're married both, to grumpy We're both men. laughing. <laughs> you so, know, so again, I think whether it's children or grumpy old men or middle-aged men, um, I do think that there's just a really special relationship there that, you know, is something that probably we sometimes forget to cherish as much as maybe it should. Like I was talking to somebody the other day whose dog is seven, right? And there's a magic of seven where they just kind of stay healthy, happy dogs for a period of time and then they get old. And so I was asking her how old the dog was and she's like, he's four. And then I look on her paperwork and he's seven. And um, I was talking about like dogs are kind of magic in that age, right? That they're kind of like the genes that make your took us look really, really good, right? They're just a good fit. And it doesn't mean that the dog is perfect. And by no means does it mean that we're perfect, but we just kind of, there's an amount of journeying together that we just fit together differently, probably because they can't entirely talk back. <laughs> so they can't tell everybody, you know, the weird things that you do that the rest of the world we we hide or that we cry or any of any of the things, any of the faults or foibles. So um, but it was funny because it was it surprised her when she was like, oh, my gosh, she's seven. Like, I, I just think of him as as being four. And I think there is a, we think of them just being with us forever, right? Like, I don't know. They journey with us differently than a lot of other, a lot of other things. And they're not, in most experience, they're not as long lived as cats. But I don't know that we're sitting here talking about the very, not that there aren't very special relationships between men and their cats, because I'm sure there are. I love my cat. 
to the moon and back, but it's not the same. It's not the same bond. Maybe I'm a terrible person to say that, but my bond with my dogs is different. I understand that. It's funny. I was thinking about a version of what you're talking about the other day. Um, I have two rescue dogs with me now. Uh, One is Tex. He's a border collie. Been about two and a half, three years together. And Dusty is a golden retriever that I adopted about this time last year. And he's still very much a puppy. And But he's starting to turn into a dog, not a puppy anymore. And it, there's something, I mean, it, there's kind of an interesting parallel, I think, between the idea that as human species and dogs kind of potentially co-evolve together in a historical sense, I think we see a version of that in our own personal lives, too, or at least I know I have. There's something about that age where we've been around our dog and our dog has been around us, and we influence and shape each other. And usually, I think, for the better. Um, And it's those golden years where we're really, just like that story with Dickens, we are in step with each other. And it really is a powerful thing, uh, so powerful. And um, 12 to 14 years is just not long enough to be able to take in all the good things that go with that sense of being in staff. Yeah, one of my favorite things I saw recently was an elderly gentleman walking with his elderly dog. And the, the sweet little old man had to slow down for his dog, and he did not care one whit. Like... He stood in his glory, walking with his dog at his dog's pace. And it was absolutely, you know, the rest of the world was hustling, bustling by. And it was a, it was a magical thing to just get to sit and watch and go, oh, I like him. Right. Like, I like him and I like his little dog, too. And the dog was like, I'm not hurrying. I'm beyond hurrying. I'm just going to walk as quick, as quickly as I can walk. But I thought, you know what? It, well, there was probably a day that the sweet man was complaining that his dog was pulling on leash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, one thing I've always said is that um, I, I believe that it's it's good to grow up with animals because animals make me a better person. They just do. I'm a much better person for having had dogs in my life than I would have been without them. There's something about them that make them make me more human. And I loved, loved, loved the idea of the little dog next to the writing desk because I'm sitting at my writing desk. And when I'm working on my novel, my Zuzu, my dog is always right next to me. And, you know, it's, it's just lovely to have that warm presence next to me. And, uh, and then if she's sound asleep, then I simply can't get up and disturb her. So I write more. So it actually works out pretty well, well too. And she's good at correcting your grammar. Oh, she is. She's, she's very good at that. And, uh, like I'm always like, how do I spell this? Right. And it's like, mom, no, the dog would not say that. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's really great. Um, you know, you know, I think about, there's a reference in the book that, uh, this is a Jungian kind of idea, but uh, dogs can be something called psychopomps, and what that means is that they're a special kind of companion as we journey into the unknown world. We need those kind of companions. Um, they inspire us. They keep us in check. Uh, they're honest with us and let us know when we overstep. And especially if we're heading into Terra Nova, like 
unknown, unfamiliar land, whether that's journeying in the mountains or deep into the inner works of our own souls and minds, it's helpful to have somebody there along the journey. Absolutely. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. And I think that's the essence of your book, that kind of having that sort of um, unwavering companion is the place where we find this mobile home. That home is always with us when we're with this unwavering companion. And I think that's part of the essence of your book. And it's just a beautiful book. So thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for joining us here on Your Family Dog. Thanks for having me on. Always nice to visit with you all. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.